Chapter One Hundred Forty Eight of Varney the Vampire, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emily Hoover. Varney the Vampire, Volume Three, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter One Hundred Forty Eight. The Road and the Travellers, the Pleasures of Doing Good. The Beggar Woman, Sir Francis Varney, a Philanthropist. The road was pleasantly bounded on either side by hill and dale scenery, while it was itself of a very diversified character, and at one moment they passed through long avenues of trees, at other times a bare heath without so much as a dwarf hedge, and then well-cultivated country would succeed, studded with handsome villas and country seats, old half-castellated mansions and halls where gentlemen lived in the abodes of their ancestors, and felt pride in doing so. The air was balmy and beautiful, every object appeared fresh, and every tree and shrub looked as though new life had been infused into it. The birds sang merrily, and the whole party were in high spirits. "'Such scenes as these,' said Sir Francis Varney, "'please me better than the gaieties and follies of the town.' I am sure there is much more happiness to be found by a contented mind than there is in the feverish pleasures of a city. "'There is much truth in that, Sir Francis,' said the captain. "'But, in my own case, connected as I am with my professional friends, I cannot follow which is the natural bent of my taste, but I find pleasure wherever I go, for I am determined to make the best of all that passes beneath my observation.' Sweets can be extracted from every bitter, and therefore it is good policy to take the bright side of a picture in all the ordinary relations of life. We are better men and better subjects by so doing. Thus the distance was soon passed over, and a stage was but the same as a pleasant morning ride, and then an hour or two spent of the heat of the day and quiet in some small but respectable inn, with wine and pleasing conversation, gave them a relish for the life they led. The style of the conversation of the stranger, Sir Francis Varney, was pleasing in the extreme. He was evidently a man of great and varied talents and attainments, and one of great experience, and who had seen much of life. Two days passed this way and they had not reached Bath. They were tempted to stop longer by the way than they would have done. "'Tomorrow,' observed Sir Francis, "'we must reach Bath. About three short stages will place us within its precincts, and then, I presume, the assembly room, as well as the pump room, will occupy much of your attention. We shall certainly go there. Have you been in Bath before?' "'Yes, but many years ago, when we were quite children, so that I have no recollection of the place.' "'And you, Captain Fraser?' "'No, I have not. I am quite a stranger there. But for the kindness of your offer, I should have to trust to strangers, or my own good fortune to find out those things which strangers usually seek, and those places they usually visit. I shall have great pleasure in showing you that which is worthy of your attention.' It is now some years since I was there, but I believe, though there may be improvements, yet the place is essentially the same. No doubt, cities seldom alter much, unless it be in their suburbs. If the alteration be great, it will point itself out. 
Exactly so. The party proceeded beneath a large cedar tree, which stood in the inn garden, with a table upon which were spread some wine and biscuits, walnuts and a few things besides, of a character agreeing much with the place. Into this garden crept an unfortunate beggar-woman, who, espying the party from the road, escaped the vigilance of the waiters and menials who hung about the inn, and entered. She crept timidly towards the party, looking wistfully but yet fearful of the consequences of the intrusion, for there was a notice in the village which gave forth fearful threats to them, should they dare to beg for the bread for which they were starving. Presently, finding the captain's eye fixed upon her, with a beseeching look, she dropped her curtsy. "'Who is that woman, and what does she want?' All turned to look upon the unfortunate creature, who began her petition by saying, "'Kind ladies and gentlemen, pity a poor woman who is starving. I am very weary, and am weak with travelling.' "'Eh, hey, what do you do here?' exclaimed the waiter. "'Come, come, we don't allow beggars in this place. The high roads or the bridewell are the only places we have in these here parts.' "'Do not be in a hurry.' said Sir Francis to the officious waiter. "'It might have been right enough to prevent her entering, but now we have seen her. I cannot, if she deserve it, refuse to aid her in her affliction.' The woman dropped a very low curtsy. "'My good woman, where have you come from?' "'From Bath, sir,' said the unfortunate creature. "'From Bath, eh? And what took you there?' "'I lived there.' "'You lived there? If that were the case, why should you leave a place where you did live, to wander about where you cannot live? That is a bad policy, methinks. What do you say, Captain?' "'I think so, too, Sir Francis,' said the Captain. "'But that may be only a verbal blunder of the woman. We can't expect propriety in speaking from such people. It would be expecting too much.' "'So it would,' said Mrs. Fraser. "'I have left Bath for two reasons, sir,' said the woman. One is, I was too unwell to work, and then my rent got into arrears. While I could work, I did pay my way, though living very hard. And what was the other reason? Why, sir, I was turned out of my lodging, and having nowhere to go to, and finding nobody would assist me, was compelled to beg. What induced you to take this road, my good woman? Because, sir, it will— if I live long enough, carry me to Portsmouth. Are you known there? No, sir. What induces you to go so far? Speak out, and do not be afraid. We have no object in asking you questions, save with the view of assisting you if we find you a worthy object. I am going to Portsmouth, replied the poor creature, in the hope that I may hear from my son, whom I have not seen these many years and who went to sea about seven years ago. "'You have a son, then?' "'Yes, sir. I had one. God knows if I have one now.' The poor woman uttered these words with such sorrowing accents that all were convinced of the truthfulness of them. "'Speak out, and tell us your story.' "'Bring the poor woman some refreshment,' said Sir Francis. "'Her tale may interest us, and give us food for reflection.' I am sure one cannot hear the misfortunes of others without feeling grateful for the luxuries and blessings one enjoys over and above the common lot of mankind. "'That is very true, Sir Francis,' said Mrs. Fraser. 
and I am sure we ought not to pass those whom we can assist by a trifle, when our means will permit our doing so. You are perfectly correct, ma'am. Have you no husband? inquired Mrs. Fraser. None, ma'am, none. When I had one, I had a good home over my head. I would not wish for happier or better days to come again. What was your husband? A respectable tradesman, who kept a good house and his own servants. We spent such a life as that for nearly fifteen years. And how came it to a close? His death, sir, which was brought on by a sudden cold. In a few days he was a corpse. I can never forget that dreadful day. We were living very comfortably and happy. My husband had just at that time entered into some speculations that promised to make a handsome fortune in a few years, and all promised success and happiness, complete and continued. "'How great a change!' said Miss Stevens. "'Yes, Miss, great indeed. My husband, hearing some news that caused him to be anxious to ascertain its truth, he left home one wet night, and got drenched through, and where he went to, he was obliged to remain in damp clothes, and, not being a strong man, he took a violent cold, and inflammation followed. After this he had medical advice, but he soon sank, and was pronounced beyond recovery. He died a very few hours after that, and I was left a widow. A few short hours caused a great change in my circumstances. What became of the business? Why, that was carried on for a time, but an accident deprived me of that. What was that? I will tell you, sir. My son was about fourteen years of age when his father died, and was just able to carry on the business, and I believe we should have done pretty well, because he was a steady youth, and I could trust him, and he looked after the men employed, and I was not robbed. However, a severe misfortune awaited me. I thought the loss of my husband a dreadful misfortune, and I believe it was. But in his case he left one behind who could help to maintain me. His loss I mourned, but it did not produce the same disastrous results that the loss of my son produced. "'How came you to lose him?' inquired the captain. "'Why, sir, I had occasion to have some business transacted at Bristol. I could send no one else, though I could ill spare him.' But then I was compelled to send him, and did send him. It was to accommodate some terms of sale, and he only knew the affair. He, therefore, went to Bristol. He was pleased enough, being his first journey, and I could hardly have resisted his importunity if I had been so inclined. He left me, and arrived safely in Bristol, and was there a day or two, when, walking about one evening by the waterside, he was seized by a press-gang, and carried out to sea. It was useless for him to complain or to entreat. They would take him, and forced him on board a man-of-war. "'He served his king and country, then,' said the captain. "'I honour him, upon my soul. And you are going to learn something of him, if he be dead or alive?' "'Yes, sir. I know this much. He was alive about two years ago, and expected to reach Portsmouth in a couple of years.' "'Well, proceed.' "'When I heard my fate,' the detention of my son, I was thrown on a bed of illness, in which I lay for nearly three months, during which time I was completely robbed and run into debt, 
and when I recovered I had but a few pounds in the world, for an execution had been put into the house, and all was sold. Thus I was left without a friend or a soul to comfort me, or any relative upon whom I could call for aid and assistance. I had no right to do so to any one, and after my misfortunes I found that my former friends deserted me. I found that it was necessary to have the means of purchasing friends, just the same as anything else. I could obtain them for money, but without money I had no friends. I was by far too independent to ask for what I felt I was capable of earning. I could live upon little, and I at once left all who had formerly known me before I attempted anything. I was determined that I would not even ask work at their hands, but get it among strangers. Of course, this caused me to seek a subsistence in the lowest capacity, and I cared not for it, because it put a still greater barrier between me and my late acquaintances. It was a long time before I obtained any employment, because I was unknown to anyone who could recommend me, or who wanted my services. This was to be expected, but the first place I obtained work at was through the interest of my landlady, and then I obtained more afterwards, and one led to another, until I obtained a hard-earned but honest living. I had a little money by me, some two or three pounds, in case of being out of work, or in case illness overtook me, then I had something to fly to, the workhouse being a place of all others I most dreaded. Sooner than go there I would consent to die by the roadside, and I have put my resolution to the test. You lost your work? I fell ill for some months. All my little store of money was gone, and my rent grew in arrear. I became more and more deeply indebted, and what food I obtained was given me by others out of charity. But this could not last long, and as soon as I was able to walk, my landlady asked me for my rent. I then told her that I had no money, but that in a few weeks, if I could find food to enable me to get up my strength, I should then be able to work, and I would then pay her off by degrees, until I was out of debt. She knew what I had been and had some thought that I had money, or if I pleased I could obtain it from my former friends, and expected me to make the attempt. But this I refused, and, upon my doing so, she, after the first expressions of astonishment and anger, gave me the alternative of doing so, or leaving the house. I was turned out, and had no refuge. I wandered about, and knew not where to go or what to do. Indeed, I was houseless and friendless, a wanderer, without a penny. I could not now obtain work. I could not do it, and my appearance caused people to shut their doors against me, and I wandered about begging. This was the first time I ever took what I had not earned, save what was voluntarily given me when I was ill. One evening, as I was creeping about, I heard some men conversing about the different vessels that were out at sea, and one of them named the one in which my son was. I instantly listened, and heard one of them say that she was on her voyage homewards, and would be home in a month. I had no sooner heard this than I had some hope. "'I will go,' I said, "'to Portsmouth. I will meet my son, and he will not refuse to support his unfortunate mother. I know his disposition too well to dream of it, and should he be unable to do so, I will beg for him.' I slept in Bath that night and then began to consider how I should get to Portsmouth. It was a long road, 
Many weary miles must be walked over ere I could get there, and as for the means, I must trust to the charity of the passengers. It would not be much more than what I was doing. I could sit on a doorstep and beg, but to walk on the road, where there were few or no passengers, I might starve. However, I resolved to make the attempt, because I loved my son, and if I could see him, I should see an end to my misery. I started out about four days ago, and I have got this far, but I have had only bread on the road, and almost despair of being able to reach there, and the charity of people is not enough to support life upon. And where have you slept as you came along? Wherever I could, sir, beneath a haystack or even a hedge. Where did you sleep last night? Beneath a haystack about seven miles from this place. And is that all you have got through today? Yes, sir, every step. And, considering my weak state, I consider it good travelling. And shall feel thankful for even that rate of travelling. You do not know how intensely I wish to get to see my son. I have no doubt of it, my good woman, and if I can, I will help you on the road. I think yours is a case that deserves some attention. If you choose to remain here all night and rest, you may. You shall have food till you go, and some food shall be placed in your hands before you go. God bless you, sir, said the poor woman in tears. You will indeed do an act of kindness to me. You will stop, and be grateful to you for your kindness. Here, waiter, said Sir Francis. Yes, sir, said that worthy, running up. Just take this person and see that she wants for nothing. Let her have a bed here, and breakfast in the morning, and let me know what the charges are, and I will pay for it. Do you hear what I say to you? Yes, sir, exclaimed the waiter, who considered the charge as one beneath his dignity, but he was forced to obey, and the woman was desired to follow him, which she did, after thanking Sir Francis Varney for his humanity and generosity. Upon my word, Sir Francis, said Mrs. Fraser, you do those things as if they were common occurrences to you. Why, madam, I am, and perhaps I ought to abstain from making the confession, one who does not love to come in contact with misery. But then one does not feel justified in turning away from it. You must have a deep purse to be able to satisfy all such claimants. I cannot do that, if I were inclined, or they were deserving, which many are not, as you no doubt must be well aware. Indeed, that is a fact. Very few of the claimants possess the same strength of right to our pity and commiseration. I am certainly struck with the woman's manners, and her artless mode of telling her story. Exactly. It bears the impress of genuineness about it. So it does. And when that is the case, I cannot resist the sense of my duty, which impels me to aid the distressed. But then I injure no one. I have ample means, and, therefore, others may do less, and yet deserve more credit. I have no heirs to come into my property, and I cannot, therefore, injure any one. If I were to give it all away, I should be entitled to do so. You are so good, Sir Francis, as you are courageous and fortunate, said Miss Stevens. I am sure I have every reason to be thankful to you for two preservations. Nay, say no more about the past. You say things at which I ought to blush to hear, 
for my modesty is greater than you imagine. But seriously, I take more pleasure in it than most people, and that may be a set-off against my disinterestedness, for I am only laying out my money in pleasure and amusement. No, no, that will not pass. It will, I hope, but permit me to return and see how they have disposed of this temporary protégé of mine. Certainly, Sir Francis, don't let us detain you. We shall remain here some time longer, and then we shall leave the shelter of this house. End of chapter 148